The sermon today will not focus on people coming back from the dead because we're finished with our mini-series on the resurrection. But we will look at 1,500 dead Israelites today. They died a long time ago. Nothing like a list of 1,500 dead Israelites to warm your heart and get the devotional juices flowing. So turn to Ezra chapter 8. We're back in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are one book in the Hebrew Bible, back in our series, The City of God. Now, let's get the background and the backstory here since we've been out of Ezra and Nehemiah for about a month, and maybe you're new to grace and you haven't even been here while we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember that after the reign of King David, king of Israel, his son Solomon took over the throne. And in time, there were many other kings throughout Israel, most of them wicked, turning away from the Lord. In time, Israel was divided into the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And in time, those kings led these nations away from worshiping Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and then the Lord sent them into exile into Babylon for 70 years. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah deal with their return to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. We saw that in Ezra chapter 1 and in Ezra chapter 2, there was this first wave of returnees, about 42,000 Israelites who returned, and they rebuilt the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. And now here in Ezra 8, we get this second wave of returnees ready to make their way back to Jerusalem. The man leading this return effort is Ezra, who we saw about a month ago in chapter 7. Ezra was a priest, a godly man who loved God's word. He studied it, he applied it, and he taught it to others. And Ezra is ready to lead this next group back. So that should kind of catch you up if you have never been here or if you've forgotten where we've been. Now let's pray one more time and we'll begin. Father, as we come to your word today, if... The Holy Spirit does not illumine our minds and open our ears and hearts to hear your word. Nothing will happen. He's the author of scripture and we need him this morning because we're going to look at a bunch of hard to pronounce names, a bunch of funny sounding names. And unless the spirit shows up and points us to Jesus, the only name that matters in this text today, then nothing will happen. So Open our hearts and minds now to the truth of your word. We ask for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. He told me that he would buy me a car. And not just any car. He told me that he would buy me a Porsche. You know what a Porsche is? A sports car, 911. He promised to buy me a Porsche on one condition. I had to marry Jenny Terry, one of the prettiest and most popular girls in school. I could be driving a Porsche if I could get a ring on Jenny Terry's finger. That's what my friend Jeff told me in high school. And let me give you the backstory here. Jeff was fascinated with the Porsche. He wanted one bad. I was content with my 1963 cherry red VW Bug, which is just the coolest car ever. But Jeff dreamed of owning a Porsche. So one day after school, we drove about an hour, hour and a half away for Jeff to test drive this Porsche that a guy was selling in another town. I'll never forget how fast we got to 120 miles per hour. Per hour, And 
how further this solidified Jeff's desire to get his dream car. So as we drove back to our town, we talked about the Porsche, we talked about the body, the interior, the color, and the speed. And and this conversation even further heightened Jeff's fascination of owning a Porsche. So that in his excitement, he said to me, one day I'm going to be rich and I'm going to buy you a Porsche too. But on one condition, you have to marry Jenny Terry. Jeff promised me a Porsche, but on one condition, I had to marry Jenny Terry. That was the car covenant that we entered into together. Me, skinny, rocker, long-haired, mullet-sporting rocker dude had to marry Jenny Terry, a cheerleader and one of the prettiest and most popular girls in school. Jenny Terry, whose dad, Virgil, was a football coach and a scary man if you wanted to date his daughter. Coach Terry was a scary man even if you didn't want to date his daughter. The Porsche could be mine, but on one condition, I had to marry Jenny Terry. Well, it wasn't going to be as hard as it sounded. After all, I was currently dating Jenny Terry, and my plan was to marry her. So in my mind, I've already got the girl, and therefore I've already got the car. But as most high school romances go, in time, Jenny would break up with me and break my heart, and subsequently my car covenant with Jeff would be broken too. No girl, no car. That's how the car covenant worked. But Jeff, seeing that the breakup was not initiated by me, had compassion and said, I'm going to buy you a Porsche anyway. Well, I'm still waiting on that Porsche. I'm not confident that Jeff is going to keep his end of the car covenant. I'm not trusting that he will. I'm not expecting him to. But if Jeff rolls up in a Porsche someday, then I'll be happy and gladly take the car and probably trade it for a VW Bug. Jeff made a covenant with me that day, and he has yet to keep it. Fortunately for us, God is faithful to the covenant that he has made with his people. God has laid down the stipulations of the covenant, which is perfect obedience, a sinless life. And none of us have been able to pull that off. We've all broken the covenant. But God, in his grace, sent Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life for us. He has fulfilled the stipulations of the covenant for us and on our behalf. Because of Jesus, God is faithful to the covenant that he has made with his people. That's what we'll see in Ezra chapter 8 today. We'll see traces of God's faithfulness to the covenant that he has made with his people, and we will see them scattered all over this chapter. We just have to look for them. Our big idea today is this, God keeps covenant, so keep trusting God. God keeps covenant, so you and I can keep trusting him. Because God is faithful to his covenant, his people can always trust him. Unlike the car covenant that Jeff initiated with me and which he has yet to fulfill, God's people can fully trust God to do all and to be all that he has promised for his people. God's promises never expire. They're not like milk. There's no expiration date on his promises. His promises do not turn sour. Jesus has secured that for us.
And we see that here in the first verses of chapter 8. Right here in this list of Israelites, the ones whose names stir your heart and give you the warm fuzzies when you read them, right here in this list of names, we have evidence of God's faithfulness to his covenant and to his people. So look at verses 1 through 2 with me and hear the words of the covenant-keeping God. These are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch evidence of Yahweh's faithfulness? It's right there. It's right there at the end of verse 2. I hope. You saw it. It's all found in those five English letters, which are three in Hebrew. It's all found in that one name, David. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Now suddenly the name Hattush is very significant. The man Hattush, a descendant of David, is living proof that Yahweh is faithful to his covenant. Do you remember what the Lord promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16? He said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Yahweh promised David that his kingdom and his throne would endure and last forever. But in Ezra, they're coming out of captivity and there's no longer any king on the throne. So what do we do with that? Is God unfaithful to his promises that he made to David? No, because now we know that this verse was pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, who would sit on the throne eternally, thus establishing David's throne forever. This was God's promise to David that ultimately pointed to and was fulfilled by Jesus, one of David's descendants. And it was this promise that Ezra And the returnees with him needed to be reminded of. Here in the midst of these dark days as the people of God try to live as the city of God. Amidst persecution and constant attacks from their adversaries. We get another reminder in the book of Ezra that God is faithful. We get that reminder because of a man named Hattush. Because Hattush is a descendant of David. Now think about it. What happened when Hattush told people that he was a direct descendant of David? What happened when Hattush name-dropped King David, when he told people, I'm related to David? What message did Hattush send out to all of Israel when he breathed in and breathed out? Every time he breathed in and breathed out, every time he walked around, he was saying this, God keeps covenant So keep trusting God. Hattush, the descendant of David, was proof that Israel could trust Yahweh. He was living proof that the Lord was faithful. And not just Hattush, but all of the people listed here in Ezra chapter 8. All of these funny sounding names are proof that God will have a people on the earth to magnify his glory as the city of God. All of these hard to pronounce Hebrew names here are proof that God is faithful. Proof that he will have a people on the earth to proclaim his majesty. 
And if you struggle to read the long list of names in the genealogies in the Bible, I'm sure none of you do. But if you do, just remind yourself that every funny-sounding, hard-to-pronounce name is supposed to remind you of how faithful Jesus is. Every name is supposed to remind you of the name of Jesus. Every name is supposed to remind you that God keeps covenant and that he keeps his promises. Now, I don't know about you, but I could use another reminder of how faithful God is. Could you use another reminder today that God is faithful to his people and that his promises never expire? I could. So let's read verses 1 through 14. Let's read verses 1 through 14 to be reminded of how faithful Jesus is to his people. Let's read verses 1 through 14 and let's get the warm fuzzies as we read all of these funny sounding, hard to pronounce Hebrew names. Look at verse 1 again. These are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. And this is Ezra speaking, by the way. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was one of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pahath Moab, Eliehoenai, and the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehael, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shelomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. Now, doesn't that just warm your heart? Don't you get the warm fuzzies as you read them? Don't you turn here to Ezra chapter 8 for your devotionals in the morning? You should. You should slap these verses on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. You should maybe go crazy this afternoon and put them on Facebook. Why? Because every name listed here in verses 1 through 14 is evidence of God's grace. Every name listed in verses 1 through 14 is proof that God is faithful to his covenant. Every name in verses 1 through 14 is proof that Jesus will have a people on the earth and that his promises are true. Names like Phineas in verse 2. 
Phineas is not just a cartoon character on the Disney Channel. His name is a testament to the faithfulness of God. Zatu might sound like a Jedi Knight from Star Wars, but his name is actually a reminder of how faithful God is. Obadiah might be the name of one of the DJs on Radio U 91.5, but his name is actually a testament to the faithfulness of God. Zechariah might be the name of my firstborn son, but his name is a reminder that God is faithful. In fact, the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers, and that's exactly what all of these names are screaming at us today. Yahweh remembers his covenant. Yahweh remembers his people. Yahweh remembers his promises. The men listed here in verses 1 through 14 total about 1,500 people. If you add women and children, it would be about 5,000 people. 5,000 people whose lives were testifying to the faithfulness of God. 1,500 families who were testifying to Yahweh's faithfulness. 1,500 homes full of people who were a testament that God will have a people who will spread his fame and his name on the earth. 1,500 homes that were full of piles of dirty laundry and piles of dirty dishes and dirty diapers and all of it was a testimony to the faithfulness of God. You have to read between the lines when you see all of these names and families. They're families, they're homes just like yours and the application is as practical as your family and your home too. Do you have a pile of dirty dishes at home? Did you leave a pile of dirty dishes in the sink this morning? Those dishes are living proof that God is faithful. God is faithful because you've been eating. Do you have a pile of dirty laundry at home? That pile of dirty laundry is living proof that God is faithful because you have clothes to wear, and I'm going to assume that you have several changes of clothes to wear. Did any of you use the restroom today? The flush, and I don't mean to be crass, I'm dead serious here. The flush of that toilet was another voice screaming at you that God is faithful and that you can trust him. So don't take flushing toilets lightly. Each time you do it, it's proof that you have had food and that you have had drink. Proof that your God is faithful. Flushing toilets are evidence of God's grace to you and to me. A while ago, I was actually scrubbing our toilets and cleaning our bathroom one day, and I was frustrated at all the mess because we have three boys, and I'm frustrated at this mess, and then I'm frustrated on the, the kitchen countertop, I mean, the, the bathroom counter, there's like toothpaste everywhere, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, do they just like jump on this tube to see how far it'll squirt and how much, just like everywhere. And I'm grumbling in my heart, frustrated and angry because I'm OCD clean freak. And it's like the spirit was coming in and convicting me and saying, they're brushing their teeth because they've been eating and drinking. They're making a mess around the toilet because they have been eating and drinking. And I was convicted. Suddenly, scrubbing toilets 
and bathroom counters became an act of worship. How? Because it was evidence that the Magnus family had been eating and drinking. God had been faithful and has been faithful to us. Dirty toilets are evidence of God's grace. Overflowing trash bags that need to be taken out are evidence of God's grace. The old McDonald's french fries and Cheerios that are scattered all over the floor of your minivan are evidence of God's grace. Testimonies to his faithfulness and your kid's messiness. Your home and your cars are full of evidence of God's grace to you. You just have to look for it. A Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs said this, Every bit of bread you eat, if you are a godly man or woman, Jesus Christ has bought it for you. You go to market and buy your meat and drink with your money, but know that before you buy it or pay money, Christ has bought it at the hand of God the Father with his blood. You have it at the hands of men for money, but Christ has bought it at the hand of his Father by his blood. The 1,500 men listed here in verses 1 through 14 were most likely a part of 1,500 families that probably totaled around 5,000 people. That's a lot of dirty dishes. That's a lot of dirty laundry. That's a lot of dirty diapers. That's a lot of dirty toilets. That's a lot of overflowing trash bags. That's a lot of God's faithfulness. The 1,500 men listed in verses 1 through 14 are saying to you, to me today, it's okay if you mispronounce our names. It's okay if you name your dog Asgad after one of us. It's okay if you struggle to read these names in your morning devotions. It's okay if you don't get the warm fuzzies when you read this list of names. It's okay so long as you walk away and this list of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names reminds you of this truth. God keeps covenant, so keep trusting God. Dirty dishes, dirty laundry, Dirty diapers and some dead descendants of David should remind you that Jesus is faithful. You can get all of that application out of a list of funny-sounding, hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names that don't necessarily give you the warm fuzzies upon first reading. You can get that application out of that. But there's even more to learn from names like Pehath, Moab, Adonikam, and Parosh. Notice too here in Ezra 8, and you can do the homework later, notice the role that genetics play. Many of the same names here in Ezra 8, we already encountered in Ezra chapter 2. And this is many years later that the next wave is coming back. Maybe some 60 years later, many of the people listed in chapter 8 are from the same families of Ezra chapter 2. This demonstrates the truth that covenant runs through families. Ralph Davis says, is there not a word of hope and encouragement here to godly fathers and mothers? Doesn't this help answer the question, what can I do for the kingdom of God? Answer, indoctrinate your kids and lead a godly life among them. Ezra 8 is a reminder that the gospel typically spreads through families. 
So what can you do for the kingdom of God, parents? Teach your kids about Jesus and keep pointing them to the gospel. Keep pointing to the overflowing trash can as evidence of his grace. And when your kids complain about taking out the trash, and they will, that's one of the effects of the fall, remind them that their stomachs are full because the trash can is full of trash. Trash that just so happens to point to the faithfulness of Jesus. Keep showing and telling your kids that God provides. In short, indoctrinate your kids. Indoctrinate them with this truth. God keeps covenant. So keep trusting God. Keep teaching your kids about Jesus. Keep telling them that they can trust Jesus for everything. And you, as a parent, keep trusting Jesus to change their hearts because you can't. There's evidence of his faithfulness all over your house. You just have to look for it. And there's even more evidence of God's faithfulness to his covenant and his people and how his people trusted in him in the next section. And we just have to look for it. So let's do that right now, beginning with verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. And then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnatan, Jerob, Elnatan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnatan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place of Casiphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, They brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David, did you catch the name? Whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. In verses 15 through 20, Ezra is recounting how he and others were beginning their trek out of Persia, what was formerly Babylon, and heading back to Jerusalem. And we'll look at their journey next week. Remember, 42,000 plus Israelites had already returned. We saw that in Ezra chapter 1 and in Ezra chapter 2. But some of the Israelites stayed behind in Babylon and did not return with the first wave of returning. So Ezra is now telling us about their trip, how they gathered by the river and camped out for three days, how they were getting supplies ready, how they made trips to Walmart, and how they went to the $5 DVD bin at Walmart because you got to buy movies for your kids to watch in the van as you make your way back to Jerusalem. Ezra's telling us here that Ziploc baggies were filled with snacks and that cases of bottled water were purchased. The road trip list of Ezra was getting checked off one item at a time. But there was one item that Ezra couldn't seem to find. Levitical priests. He reviewed the passenger manifest and there were no Levitical priests on board. If there were no Levites, then there would be no qualified leaders to lead Israel in worship. They needed Levitical priests. 
Yahweh had declared, the Lord had declared in Numbers 3 and in other passages that the Levites were to be the leaders and the guardians of worship in Israel. The Levites were like Jedi knights that guarded the temple and guarded the sanctuary and made sure people were approaching the Lord in a manner worthy of the Lord, making sure that they were bringing the appropriate animals for sacrifices. So they're like these Jedi knights that protected the temple, protected the presence of the Lord to keep people from coming in inappropriately. Not that the Lord needed to be protected. The people needed to be protected from the Lord so that they didn't enter inappropriately. And Ezra knew that he needed some Levitical priests like this if they were going to worship. And so he sends some wise, skilled men to Casiphia to get some Levitical priests. Now apparently in Casiphia, there was some sort of makeshift temple or worship area where devout Jews were still worshiping Yahweh. And so Ezra sent some men with some funny-sounding names to see a man named Ido. Ezra sent a man named Joyarib. That sounds like a barbecue joint. And did you notice that Ezra sent three men named Elnaton? Tell me that wasn't confusing every time someone said, Hey, Elnaton! And three men turned around. I bet it made for a fun trip. So Joyarib and the three Elnatons went to see a man named Ido in Casiphia, who was in charge of the worship center there. And these men asked Ido to send some Levites and some temple servants to accompany Ezra and the others on their road trip back to Jerusalem. Now, notice a few things that are significant here. First, it says that the good hand of our God was upon us. Evidence of God's faithfulness. We saw this phrase several weeks ago in chapter 7. It appears three times here in chapter 8. God's good hand graciously provided 200 plus temple servants to help lead the people in worship. And God's hand graciously provided Sherebiah, a man of wisdom and discretion. That's what you want in leaders. Wisdom and discretion. And God's good hand graciously provided the much-needed Levites, the Jedi Knights, the guardians of the covenant. All of this provision was evidence of the faithfulness of God to his people and to his covenant. Secondly, notice that David's name is mentioned again here in verse 20. Again, the mention of David's name is another reminder that God is faithful to the covenant. We saw it in verse 2, and here it is in verse 20, kind of bookending this whole section as if to say, remember Israel, remember future people who read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that God is faithful to his covenant, faithful to the promises that he made to David, faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham. Notice, too, that Ezra trusts God's word. Ezra could have just said, hey, let's all go back to Jerusalem. But he knew something. He knew we need Levitical priests because the book of Numbers tells us that. Ezra was a priest. He knew scripture. He knew that the law required for Levites to help lead worship. He knew that there were specific guidelines given for who could lead worship. He knew that he needed these qualified leaders and he knew that because he knew God's word. Lastly, notice that the priests had covenant obligations. They could have stayed in Casiphia studying and teaching Torah. They, could, they were living the glamorous life in this makeshift worship center. There was no temple, so they just passed the time with Bible studies. Who wouldn't love to do that all day? Just sit around all day and study the Bible. But then Ezra's men show up, and they say, Go back with us to Jerusalem. Travel 900 plus miles with us. It's going to be a long road trip. It's going to take at least four months. It will be dangerous. It'll be a very dangerous journey. We might get ambushed on the way. You might die. 
But if you come, you'll have to leave the comfortable life here in Persia. There are so many uncertainties that await us in Jerusalem. We don't know yet where we'll live. We don't even have houses yet. You'll have to work at the temple in Jerusalem, and the work will be hard. The hours will be long. You might not get a vacation for a while. The ministry will exhaust you and drain you. I know it doesn't sound exciting, but will you join us? And guess what? These priests and these temple servants signed up. They signed up to be overworked in ministry. These priests and Levites would agree with J.C. Ryle who said, A cheap Christianity that offends nobody, requires no sacrifice, and costs nothing is worth nothing. So when these Levitical priests and these temple servants said, sign us up. When does the bus leave? When they said that, it was another reminder of God's faithfulness. Another reminder that God keeps covenant, so keep trusting God. The 1,500 men listed here, plus their families, probably totaled around 5,000 people who were willing to leave comfort and security to go back to Jerusalem. Add to that the extra men who came from Casiphia, and you get another 260 or so, plus their family, so maybe another 1,000 people. So you have about 6,000 plus people now in Ezra 8 who are willing to make this long, dangerous road trip back to Jerusalem so that they could be the city of God. These 6,000 plus people are proof that God will have a people on the earth to praise his name and to spread his fame. After a four-month, 900-mile journey, they'll join the other believers in Jerusalem. These 6,000-plus people are proof that Yahweh kept his promise to David. These 6,000-plus descendants of David are proof that God keeps covenant and that God is faithful. So let me ask you this morning, do you find joy and nourishment in the truth that God is faithful? Or have you just heard it so much? Yeah, yeah, God's faithful. Yeah, there's promises in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Do you find joy? Does it stir your heart? Does it give you the warm fuzzies? Does it get your devotional juices flowing to hear that God keeps covenant, that he is faithful to the covenant, that his promises are true? Do you get joy and nourishment from that? Does that stir your heart this morning? Or have you just heard it so much that you don't even think about it? If it doesn't stir your heart, then let Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs that we read a moment ago from, let him help you. He says, thus you see how a godly heart finds contentment in the covenant. Many of you speak of the covenant of God and of the covenant of grace. But have you found it as effectual as this to your souls? Have you sucked this sweetness from the covenant and contentment to your hearts in your sad conditions? It is a special sign of true grace in any soul that when any affliction befalls him, in a kind of natural way, he repairs immediately to the covenant. In other words, when anything happens in your life, you immediately go to God's word, you immediately go to his promises, you immediately go to the covenant that he's made with you. Just as a child, as soon as ever it is in danger, need not be told to go to his father or mother, for nature tells him so, so it is with a gracious heart. As soon as it is in any trouble or affliction, there is a new nature which carries him to the covenant immediately where he finds ease and rest. 
If you find that your hearts work in this way, immediately running to the covenant, it is an excellent sign of true grace. Do you find ease and rest in the fact that God is faithful to the covenant that he has made with you because of Jesus Christ, your Lord? Do you run to your heavenly father like a child naturally runs to their father? You know, my kids, whenever they're scared, nobody has to tell them, it's probably a good idea if you run and grab onto daddy's leg. When they get scared, they run. They know what to do. Do you do that when anything befalls you in your life? Do you run to the covenant? Do you, as Burroughs says here, I love the imagery, do you suck the sweetness out of the covenant? Well, if Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs can't convince you with his words, and if this list of King David's dead descendants can't convince you, then let that descendant of David, Jesus Christ, convince you. Let Jesus, the most important descendant of David, let him convince you that he keeps covenant because that's precisely what he said in the upper room on the night before his crucifixion. In Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is living and dying proof that God keeps covenant. So we should keep trusting God. Jesus is our high priest who has made the way possible for us to run into God's presence. And if you're still struggling to believe, after this Johnny come lately and Jeremiah Burroughs and Jesus himself can't convince you, then maybe the author of Hebrews, whose name we don't know, Maybe the author of Hebrews, whose name we don't know, maybe he will be able to convince you that Jesus is faithful. Because he says in Hebrews 10, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter or to run into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us run with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Are you weighed down with troubles today? Then run to him. Are you encumbered by some sin? Then run to him. 
Yes, run to him, even if you are covered with the filth and the funk of sin. That's what the elements at the Lord's table represent. If you're looking for evidence of God's grace and his faithfulness and his faithfulness to the covenant, then look no further than the bread and the cup here in the Lord's Supper. The bread and the cup are screaming out to you and me, run to him, run to him, run to Jesus, sinners. As Kelly Capick said, run from him, That is the last thing that he desires. Run to him. This is to understand the glory of the gospel. The last thing Jesus wants right now is for you to run from him. Run to him. Run to him covered with all the junk of this world and the filth and the funk of your sin that you wallowed in last week just like me. Run to him and let him wash you and cleanse you with his blood. That's what he wants more than anything. To run to Jesus is to understand the gospel. There's evidence of God's faithfulness to the covenant that he has made right here in this room. All you have to do is look for it. Right here in the elements of the Lord's Supper, God is certifying that his promises are true and that the gospel promise is true. Will you believe? Will you run to him? Let's run to him now. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We run to you, God. We run to you knowing we're sinners. We run to you now knowing that we've had terrible thoughts this week. We've uttered terrible words out of our mouths. We've done terrible things with our bodies. And we've had terrible, very terrible motives driving all that we've thought, said, and done this week. But we run to you. From our perspective, covered in the filth of our sin, but we run to you from your perspective, knowing that we are covered with the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, and that you see us as blameless. We run to you this morning as little children running to their father. We want to grab onto your leg and find hope and peace this morning. Forgive us of our sins and help us to keep our eyes on your son in whose name we pray, amen.